This is Richie Wexer of Vintage Annals Archive Outsider Podcast. Very happy to be here today and introduce our guest, uh, Reggie Bugmuncher or Reggie Bugmuncher. Reggie's an American entertainer based in Sacramento, California. I've known Reggie through Philadelphia for about 15, 20 years. We've done you know photography together, all kinds of stuff. Um, they are one half of Old City Sideshow, started in Philadelphia, and have been performing in circus and sideshows for over a decade. As a solo performer, she travels the country working everything from the midway to nightclubs and variety shows. Reggie is one of the few women in the world performing several unique acts, such as the anatomical wonder act and riding a motorcycle in a high wire thrill show she's appeared on the gong show america's got talent been featured in stories by news outlets from fox to npr and in books and, and magazines on tattoos and sideshow she's opened up for primus suspended for jane's addiction performed for ripley's believe it or not and tattoo conventions across the globe we get into all kinds of different stuff reggie also has a master's degree from philadelphia university in disaster medicine medication and management um, did a bunch of stuff volunteering for COVID. Um, they also performed marriages. Very cool, unique human being. We're just going to have today's a little more of a loose conversation. We get into some of this stuff, but also just get into the world and just kind of ch- catch up and chat. But I think you really enjoy it. Um, please check out our sponsor, Risk Risk Show, show uh, Risk Podcast, uh, run by Kevin Allison. The great storytelling. It highly inspired what we do here. Uh, and Kevin Allison does coaching through that. Um, and he is amazing. He's been our coach for this podcast, and without his work, I would not have gotten this far. And I really, very sweet person, very patient, very smart, but he knows what he's doing. Highly recommend checking, uh, hiring Kevin for any any need you have in the podcast or storytelling worlds. Thank you. Enjoy. What happened to your house? I know you had a situation with your house where you were driving it and it like it got stuck in the road or something. Yeah. So um, I tried to hire, I hired a company. So I learned a lot. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so like tiny houses aren't meant to be on the road all the time. And a lot of people seem to think that like I can drive it around and like live in it. Like an, it's not an RV. Yeah. It's not like that. Um, so it's supposed to like basically buy it and move it to a permanent place, maybe move it once or twice. But it was sitting in an RV park waiting from the place that I had bought it, the people I bought it from to move up here. Um, but I had to find a place in Sacramento and uh, during a pandemic and unlike trailers, I had to find a place that would take this because they don't have a uh, sewage cap like RVs do. It has to run right into a city line or, or have a composting toilet. Um, so I finally find a place and uh, hire a driver. And what happens is a lot of times when you see like moving tiny houses or moving this, it's just one dude that owns a website and he's posting stuff like a forum, like basically pitching it out to the highest bidder for drivers or lowest bidders. Okay. So it's not like organized. There's not, they're not skilled. Uh, I mean, like a lot of them could be. I had one dude who was like real late and crazy and he got down there, said he's going to start breaking my stuff if he didn't get uh, his money. And we were like, dude, we got somebody else. You were three days late. He was crazy and then we got somebody else who was really great um but turns out my trailer was overweight i had stuff in it and i wasn't supposed to and didn't realize that and because it was overweight uh the tire blew out twice and every time they're waiting for somebody to come to them in the middle of the desert in lucerne valley california these guys are on the clock so i'm paying them hourly there's a tire on the house itself well the house is on a trailer it's on a trailer okay like a so it's registered with a dmv with a trailer so you can hitch it on 
Um, but yeah, this guy, you know, he's, I'm paying him hourly to wait by the side of the road for this guy to drive two hours to him. And like, so the second tire blows out and it's like, now it's nighttime and now it's not easy. And you have to have a special jack to lift this thing up, which a lot of these like emergency guys don't have. And so he's like, listen, I could just leave it somewhere safe. And I thought he was going to leave it somewhere safe and he didn't. He left it oh, literally on the side of the road shit. in the desert. And uh, we got down there because it's an eight hour drive. We had to go rent a goddamn U-Haul, drive down there, load up the U-Haul with my stuff. Uh, when we got there, we could see that the doors had been smashed in and the windows uh. and stuff. Um, yeah, it was really heartbreaking. And because I had stuff packed in there, it took months to really kind of figure out everything I lost because they just kind of grabbed things as it was. This is the house you're in now, right? Yeah, it ended in a ton of miracles, like tons of people helping me on the side of the road. Like a freaking uh, Polaris race team showed up and they had the proper jacks. They changed my tires in like seconds. Almost like a pit crew. Just like, just I don't know where just come. <laughs> it literally was a pit crew because they were on their way to a race. Holy shit, that's so cool. It was, it was like, it was like the next day I could have really had the worst day of my life. I mean, but instead it was like the universe sent me all types of people, got my ass back in gear and helped me out. And I think it's hard to like remember that, that, things are going to be good when you're in that kind of shit because yeah. you know it can feel like the end of the fucking world and you're just like i guess i'll just lay next to my house and and just not eat for a week and just die next to my house <laughs> desert yeah right you have these two different paths you've taken more or less and maybe they're maybe they're not maybe they're not that different but it seems like there's you know you're performing and you've been a performer for many years but also i love that you're doing this health stuff and that you kind of stepped up to really take care of a lot of people during COVID, which not everybody did. What really, what made you kind of do that? I, I've had people say that there's a connection between like my two lives um, in the sense that I'm helping people, one through art, one through medicine. And then I think that uh, for me as a, as a human being that's had a hard time interacting with people, um, I grew up in a military family that moved all over. I lived in Europe until third grade. And then it was new schools every year, making new friends every year. So I've always had a really hard time um, fitting in. And so I think I found, uh, I found two worlds where I could, you know, force myself to really kind of interact with people. Um, so it's, you know, the, it, but it also requires a certain level of like being a character. You know, I, I have a character for stage and then I, here I am interacting with people because I'm not necessarily the most social person. I'm not hanging out with the audience at all. Like I'm not, people always say like, oh, you're so outgoing. And I'm like, absolutely not. I like to go on in there and help out this crowd of people or do this type of thing. I like to be close. Um, but I've, I've had some trouble um, just with like developing relationships. And these were two ways that I felt that I could get close to people and uh, do things that I felt really good about. And let me just, let me jump in real quick to relate. Part of the reason I, I try to chime in is I want to connect. It's more of a connection with you. It's kind of like a therapist giving you a little like, oh, this is what I went through here and there. But the, the idea is to get you to talk more, not to, for me to talk for a half hour. Yeah. Um, but I'm the same way. And for me, photography fits that. It's a way to connect with people where I'm so protected. Because I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I didn't travel a lot in my when I, youth, but I, I never really fit in. And, and it, that's the one, that's been the one connection to the world because I can go in and out. I always joke that I really would love to meet like thousand people, but for like three minutes each. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and that's just, and that's like that, you know, so I guess I, I would assume that you're also probably more along the lines of uh, an ambivert, which is like half introvert, half extrovert, but maybe leaning yeah. more towards introversion. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a lot of energy for short spurts with people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, my mom was a, a psych nurse, uh, so in healthcare was something that was all, that was very normal around my house, uh, science and healthcare. 
after college, I wound up becoming an EMT and I was a volunteer EMT out at Parkside Fire Department out in Delaware County. That's also when I joined the Medical Reserve Corps. And the Medical Reserve Corps in Philly, um, started, I signed up to go to a grad school at Philly U, and that was for disaster medicine and management, which is basically like emergency management with an epidemiology portion to study diseases and stuff in medical healthcare. When I initially went in there, I went there to work, and I went there to work with the midwives because they have one of the best uh, midwifery programs in the country. That's really cool. Yeah, so uh, I was working with midwives. Um, I really didn't want to necessarily work with men anymore. <laughs> and uh so I was working with midwives. I got really even more in-depth into medicine, and I got to go to grad school as an employee there. Yeah, and then became an EMT and worked with the Medical Reserve Corps. And the Medical Reserve Corps is just a volunteer organization of medical professionals and also some people that just have maybe administrative experience that can help out. But anytime there's a huge thing, like uh, when the Pope visited Philly, I got to deploy with them. So they're, they're the ones that set up those tents at the marathons. They're the people that help cover the gap in coverage uh, from other medical health care that's being paid. Yeah, so from there on out, I just uh, continued working in medicine, volunteering with them. Let me jump in. Let me jump in for one second. So I'm just curious, you know, because of doing Sideshow, you know, Sideshow can be extreme. I mean, you know, you chose your degree says it was a uh, disaster medicine and management. Are you kind of attracted to drama in a certain sense? I don't mean that in a negative way. I know it sounds like a shitty question. You, you kind of get off on the on adre- adrenaline, I guess, is the question. I think I'm just a pretty gothic optimist. Um, gothic I don't know if optimist. it's really about the, I, love... I don't know if it's really about like a rush or this and that, because I mean, um, there's so many gigs that I've done where I've been in dangerous situations or like, you know, like that motorcycle gig, you know, I would pray every day before, you know, I got on that motorcycle. What do you mean by gothic optimist? Do you mean you just, you're, you're, you're not thrown off by intensity or by like darkness or i'm drawn to the intensity i'm drawn to the magic of like the human ability um and like i think the correlation between sideshow and medicine and the things that i'm interested in is like just these capabilities of human medicine because what there was a a friend of mine writing a sideshow book and he was looking for an anatomist and because i worked in the school of science and health during the day i was like well i've got an anatomist for you and he wrote the the beginning couple of pages of this book, he ran through every sideshow act talking about why it's possible, how it's possible, the wonders of the human body. Because one of the things that we like to say in sideshow is everybody can do what we do. It's not everybody's gonna, unless somebody actually has a skill because they have like some kind of, they were born different or something like that. But for the most part, every act everyone can do. And it's just a matter of really engaging the power of the human body and everything that it's able to do. It's the same thing with disaster medicine. It's like, holy shit. Like there's a chance that I could get on scene and like see something and make a huge difference. And like, I understand these things. It's kind of like a, it's, it's the peak nerd, peak nerdness with all of Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. That's really interesting stuff. What made you, and you're also, a, you said you're also a... It's just be it be it LS certification. What is I didn't know what that meant. Oh, that's just a basic life support. So like okay. you know, infant CPR, child CPR, adult, all that. And you've stuff. done and you've done like you've also done. I thought you said you've done work as an ENT, correct? Yeah. Nice. And what made you decide to become a marriage officiant? I had some really great weddings that I did okay. in Philly. I've married I, for some reason. Some somewhere in the neighborhood, it got around that uh, I did weddings, and I must have done about like six or seven Mexican weddings. Everybody, like you know, every couple of weeks, somebody would be knocking up at my house on Marshall Street and was like, "Hey, wedding!" And like they would have bad English, and I would have bad Spanish, and I'm like, 
fucking do this. <laughs> <laughs> One time we had just like a great Zoom meeting and it was everybody back in Mexico on this big uh, laptop over in the corner. And then like the party went all night and it was just really great. Like, um, I know that's, that's another part of my human interactions. You know, I'm like a pretty old saucy now. And I think I was getting pretty soft then. I've never been married. So I really just am kind of a diehard romantic about some of that stuff where, and it also lets me be a part of that magical wonder that other people have that I probably am not going to have. <laughs> but at this point, I've kind of settled into who I am. So just kind of like being involved in that kind of magic is really cool for me. Yeah. I, I feel like I almost feel, I don't know if this is just like me or being like neurodivergent or like what the hell it is with me. I, as, I, as I've gotten older and the more time that I had spent in therapy uh, during the pandemic, the more I started really, my, my therapist was like, let's talk about some stuff. <laughs> I want to ask you a question just related to that, if you don't, if you don't mind me interrupting. Yeah. What I found is there's, there's a certain magic to neurodivergent people, in my opinion. I was a special teacher. And I did a lot of research on like autism, you know, people with autism and like in other cultures, they were like gods. And the question I have is, do you feel like there's magic in your life because of how your brain works? Yeah, I, I really do. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of my life I spent focusing on my unusual responses to things being bad. People being like, oh, you're so weird. Oh, you're so different. Because my answer to something would be so very different than that. Or the way that I put words together or the way that I talk to people, people would say like, you know, she talks funny or she's weird or like that. What a bizarre answer. Ha ha ha. And like people chuckle it off. But then when you're a teenager, people think you're a real weirdo, which also can be a little bit more alienating. And then you get a little bit older and you realize that those the same things that alienated you are now the reason that people in your 30s think you're funny as hell. Right. It's the reason why people want to come see you on stage. They're kind of like, what a different perspective. What an interesting view. It, it's helped me out in business. It's helped me out performing. And I think that like part of that magic is also realizing that that your differentness is magic too because it's always stood out it's just viewed differently by people at different age groups i think was there a certain moment or moments that you're like that you got that yeah i i think that a lot of those realizations have from happened for me during the pandemic because i was just pretty much on autopilot and i was um traveling all the time like nonstop. like you, you know what my schedule was like before it was just a new town every weekend it, i was incredibly alienated i lived in a hotel room and then the only people that i saw were people that i you know the couple of days i was back home a week and then the people that I traveled with normally on those circuits or at those shows. I didn't have a consistent friend group or anything. So I was just constantly like on my own and I wasn't thinking too much about like myself or what made me special. And then once the pandemic happened, I kind of like, uh, kind of, kind of realized. <laughs> pandemic, best time of my life. Yay, COVID. Yeah, oh my <laughs> God. Oh, the dark times. This seems like whatever you're doing, you're fully in, you're engaged, you know, like describing yourself as an advocate for small and sustainable living. That's a, that's a statement versus just, I live in a small house. And I just wonder, if, is there a certain nerdiness and interest that you just, you're just passionate about that shit and you just have to keep going with it? Yeah. Um, I mean, on some hand, there's not much turning back now. I mean, <laughs> right. You're not going to travel with that house. You're not traveling with that house anymore. Correct. You've learned your, you've learned your lesson. Yeah. This, this house is only going to move one more time and it's going to go onto permanent property once I get it. But that's, that's as far as this is going. I've always wanted to, I've always been very jealous of people who had hobbies. Like I remember, um, so I went to Drexel undergrad and I had a boyfriend that was in, uh, he was a film major. And so he knew everything about films. Like, you know, foreign film, this person, this director, this collection, blah, blah, blah. 
nerdy talk, nerdy talk, nerdy talk. And then all of his friends were similar. And then I noticed um, this college was the very first time that I realized other people had like interests that they were really into. You know, my, my pop-up was a gardener, but that was utilitarian. That wasn't a hobby that he had. That was like how we grew food. He gardened, uh, but right. that wasn't, it, it wasn't presented to me as like, this was a hobby or how he relaxed. Like there was nothing that I grew up with that was something that people just knew a lot about and were good at until I was in college. And I was like, holy shit, this person's really good at makeup. This person knows everything about movies. This person yeah. knows everything about music. And I felt like more of this uh, Renaissance man. Like I, like I wasn't excellent at anything and I didn't know everything about anything. I just knew a little bit about a lot. That's when I really started trying to focus on things that I was interested in and excelling. And I've always been kind of an overachiever. The amount of like FEMA certificates that I have, I, I, I definitely compulsively learn and sign yeah, up for yeah. things. Do you think you learn by doing or what's called experiential learning versus other ways? Yeah, I am not an auditory learner. Um, which is why I start apologizing to people almost immediately when I meet them. I'm like, hey, I might have a problem remembering your name and I'm going to say it back to you. But it's, <laughs> I have to even even with stuff like that, I can write things down and commit it to memory. But hearing something, if somebody gives me verbal directions, like, like you're going to drive down here, make a right at 7-Eleven, make a left here. And it's like, I lost you. I lost you at 7-Eleven, buddy. <laughs> kind of being in the same place you are with coming to neurodivergent status. I've always had a photograph memory of faces. Do you have any like things that like that that are these like really intense talents? You're just like, I don't even understand how I can talk about it. Anything like any, any, I don't know, any kind of like special, I mean, I, I want to call them savant skills, but that's not a really nice term. I, uh, I actually did not, this is kind of the opposite of what you're asking, but I didn't realize that people could see things in their mind when they close their eyes. I don't, uh, like if somebody was like, if you can close your eyes and picture even what my son looks like, or picture even what my cat looks like, Yeah. I can't see anything in there. Huh. Um, so like if I close my eyes and try to picture somebody's face that I've seen a million times, like I can kind of look, I can kind of see yours because you were just there, but that's, that's about it. Um, but I did realize a couple of years ago, I thought it was very bold. There's a, the woman that owns the motorcycle act that I did. Her name's Una. And I remember her saying a couple of times, well, there's like nothing I can't do. And I was like, well, that's bold. And I realized that in my own, I guess like that's kind of my superpower is that I don't really think that there is anything that I can't do. Like, do I want to do it? Maybe not. And that's the reason I'm not going to do it. But is there anything that I can't do? And, you know, that even, I would say that that goes for pretty much almost anything. Uh, I think that I really can do almost anything. You have just believe, a, a true belief system, and if you put your energy to it, you'll be able to do it. That's a very special gift, and that's kind of what I was asking about. Yeah, sometimes if it's time or money that's missing, um, I mean, that's that's it. But that doesn't take away from the, my ability to be able to do it. Like, I really think I can. Doing research on you, it's hard. I want to make sure I'm, I use the appropriate yeah. words, but it seems like it's, you know, there's like... It's there's like so many lies. things I, well, but there's also, I feel like there's like burlesque, which I, I know you straddle different worlds. So just, if I say something that is not accurate, just let me know. But I mean, I guess overall you would consider yourself primarily a sideshow performer. How did that happen? If you don't mind, what's your origin story? Oh, my origin And does it involve radiation of some kind, please? Yeah, I know. would be so much cooler. Uh, just Tesla coils. There's a little bug, <laughs> there's a little bug in my ear and they tell me what to do. It's the 
podcasts. They talk to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I was pretty unfamiliar. I wasn't even somebody that grew up other than like going to stadium Ringling Brothers shows, you know, like in Philly. Like I didn't experience regular like circus shows or tent shows and stuff like that. But in college, I went to go see Los Straight Jackets. Los Straight Jackets was actually on this tour with the Pontani sisters, the burlesque dancers. Angie Pontani is still performing. How old are they? Maybe even a year or two younger than me. Okay. Um, but like in the, roughly the same age group, I would say like late 30s, early 40s. But this was, I mean, this was 20 years ago when I saw them and they were out of New York and they were just kind of, I had never seen anything like them up close, like not in a movie, like beautiful girls with big black hair and red lipstick and really cool outfits. And they were doing just a couple of, uh, you know, synchronized dance moves to the surf rock band. They weren't out for every song, but right. at one point, um, you know, we were at the truck and there were some dickheads like that were sitting in front of the stage and they had their beer on the stage and you know just kind of staring up at them being creeps and I remember I forget which one it was I feel like it was uh Angie Pontani but like she came dancing over like didn't even break her tap dancing smile face you know and shimmy 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 and then bang kicked his beer right over <laughs> fell right off the stage and then went back smiling like yeah 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 and I was like I want to be a Pontani sister <laughs> and I was like I was sold and then you know learning a lot about the burlesque world um I didn't know much I didn't know people in it, but I wound up getting invited to an internet forum called Dibbik Schmibbik, which had Dibbik uh, as in the as in the Jewish uh, witch. Uh, no, it was just a rhyming up nonsense word like Dibbik because okay. they rhymed. But there was a guy that moderated that who had friends in Jersey and friends in Philly, and my name had come up somewhere in there. I joined the forum, and that's where I met Danny and Martin, who were looking for a third lady to be assistant in the show. That was your main project, the old. Old City Sideshow, correct? Old City Sideshow, yeah. And so I signed up um, with them, became friends with them, and started off kind of as an assistant. Okay. And then moved up uh, learning a bunch of acts, got a mentor, studied with him. Yeah, and then the rest was kind of history. Everybody else wound up leaving the show. I want to focus on this. I, I wish I had had more time to research you because when I know people in another world, I... I have to kind of cut time here and there, but I did I did enough. I did a few hours just to look around. And I liked how you were, some interview you did where you talked about how people don't really like have mentors, don't really have teachers. So yeah. I want to hear about like that your, your own process, people that were your mentors, people that you mentor, think it's better to have like to do more of a, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? To, like an apprenticeship. Thinking about neurodivergent or, I mean, I'm, I taught special ed for many years. Again, for many people, that's the best way to fucking learn because you do it like, you know, throughout, like you're talking about how um, you don't process auditory. I mean, if you don't process auditory well, then how the fuck are you going to learn something unless you're doing it? Especially, especially like things like sword swallowing where your closest mentor could be so far away. You're, you're relying on phone calls and videos and like other stuff like that. From, you can't learn that shit from a book. And if you do and you do it, you're a fool. Can't imagine just do, reading a book and then just putting a sword down my fucking throat. That can't be a positive way to do it. Yeah, and it, it, it creates conflicting feelings for me because I think starting out, because I was, um, you know, I think that it's the same response that you get a lot from people that have been through really bad hazing. You know, like where they're like, oh, if I had to go through this level of hazing, you have to if you want to be in this fraternity instead of realizing like, hey, it should stop with me. I, I'm very torn because I don't want people learning on YouTube and learning in books and all this other stuff. But then at the same time, that really really shitty attitude also creates a lot of gatekeeping. So like, you know, explain that a little more. I, lo I lost you on that. If somebody wants to learn how to sword swallow and all the sword swallowers out there aren't willing to mentor you or they're all really old white men and they're not really interested in taking on young black female, you know, performers, you know, then like 
you wind up with this really thing where, where people are like learning in rogue ways. It's like this whole conflict. It's like, I don't, I don't, you know, why don't you do things the old school way? Why don't you get a mentor? Why don't you do an apprenticeship? And people are like, yeah, fucking find me somebody that's going to mentor me. You know, how long is this apprenticeship? Like in, in the world that we live in right now, is it appropriate to do an apprenticeship where somebody is providing free labor to somebody else? You know, like kind of think about like the tattoo apprenticeships, but you know, like we've all heard nightmares about like old school stuff. My, my main mentor was a person named Harley Newman okay. and he's out of Pennsylvania. He's a really well-known escape artist. He's nice. probably best known for uh, having rope tied around his feet, being suspended like 60 feet up in the air while the rope's on fire and he's in a straight jacket. So he's got to get out of the straight jacket before the rope completely disintegrates and then he can swing over real fast to another rope and get out of there. But he's, you know, he does sword swallowing on unicycles and stuff like that. How did you find him? He is very close. He's in Pennsylvania, so he's close there. But he's also one of the very few people that teaches, like, and actually actively talks about it. So it's not like a, a lot of people might teach you if you spend years buddying up to them and you're doing that. Whereas, like, he saw a gap in that education and was like, listen, you know, maybe twice a year, I'm going to have two little weekend workshops. You're going to give me a flat amount of money. These are the skills that you're going to use. And then you're going to be accountable to me for like the rest of your life. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I've, I've worked with him. It's like working for Dra It's like working for Dracula. <laughs> How long was that process? Well, I had already learned some baseline things and I had been performing on stage as like the assistant and the geek act and like little minor, like unskilled things for a bit. That weekend, it was probably like a four day weekend where we were up there and they were very long days, like 12 hour days. We all ate, ate together like a team, figured things out together like a team. I didn't get a sword, sword down that day. I wasn't able to probably for years after that. But then when I went back up there, I started swallowing again while I was up there. Um, went and just visited him. He's now at least somebody I consider to be a friend and mentor. He's very theater based. So I think that's, uh, you, I think you can always tell who you hung out with as a young performer because it's wild because you know the Squidlings, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And like they, they started off a lot uh, doing stuff with Enigma. You know, so like uh, Enigma, you've probably seen him. He's the blue guy. He's the blue. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like a. I've done a lot of photography with those guys over the years. Yeah. So like a Enigma is kind of like I guess the older like person that was hanging out with them that had been doing it around a while. So like you can kind of see like influences in their art and performance, and just like with me with a. With Harley, I see a lot of theater-based type of like nerdy stuff and like different things and that. Like so you can, it's always really funny to see a performer and then look at the the old heads they were hanging out with when they were developing their skill because you see little bits and pieces, like little tastes and flares of their mentors in there. You know. Are you more attracted to a more theatrical pr presentation, or is that just because of your mentor? I think I am probably a more attracted to a theater type thing. I mean, I was nice. I did uh, some theater in grade school, and I was always in chorus, so I was kind of definitely into that type of stuff, like musicals. So I think that that definitely fit, and I like. I mean, if I had the budget, these shows would be amazing. <laughs> I'm a musical theater freak. If you ever want to do a musical, I am. I'm happy to help you. I've been trying to <gasps> shop around for a musical, and if it's involved with sword swallowing. There's a lot of good songs in there. I can, you know, a lot of good, a lot of good puns, a lot of good puns. There'll be a song with somebody who just doesn't have a tongue. Oh my God, the Barbara <laughs> Seville, but now with swallowing. <laughs> who just, we have a character who just loves everybody, but has, doesn't have a tongue, so no one can understand that they're that they're being called out for love, and it's just they just do a really sad song where they're just making a, a, a odd sound for three minutes. <laughs> Sorry, it's dark. Oh my God, I love that. That's so dark. Are there people that you have mentored and you have taught, or are there people that you just have championed or think are really great? 
Um, I, I mean, I have uh, helped out a couple of people um, every single time. I have almost regretted it, which is why I understand why a lot of the old heads don't want to mentor anyone. I had a God, there was this chick in uh, Philly that, like, I, I, I almost got thrown out of Old City Sideshow for bringing her in. I was like, listen, I was like, she's a young woman, and she wants to learn Sideshow. We need more women in Sideshow. And I think that I became more interested in the diversity aspect rather than the kind of people I was bringing into the world. It's a, it's a good goal, though, but I hear you should have evaluated her more you know it, it got so bad I was very upset because at some point she had stolen an act from insectivora and I called her out on it and I said hey somebody's telling me that you're doing her act the girl started laughing and she said oh anybody can do that that's not a thing and I was like but that's kind of her signature act she does a blockhead where she puts a paintbrush in her nose and she does a full painting and this other that this young girl who had never like performed live and like not been getting paid or anything like just decided to steal all that and say it was no big deal because anybody could do it I hear that. Let me ask you a quick question because you're on the topic. So somewhere I read about you said something that inventing stunts, someone says they invented stunts or a liar. Do these acts kind of work like folk songs that are handed down? Is there a certain amount of structure you're allowed to take as long as you do your own thing with it? Or does it not really work that way? Uh, well, I think that part of the, there's, there's maybe 10, 15 acts in Sideshow, you know? Um, and so with only 10 to 15 actual stunts to work with, the people that rise to the top are the people that take those stunts and make them their own. That's why stealing act like that is incredibly shitty because, you know, it, it is really hard to take an act that 3,000 people have done and make it so special that people associate it with just you. Um, you know, like there's been times where people think that the I hooked act is mine and it is absolutely not. Neither is the grinder act. It's just kind of like my presentation, my equipment, the music, stuff like that. Uh, so I hooked is when I put fish hooks in my eyes and I use uh, pearl strands. I hang them from my eyelids and then I pick up a fish tank with it. And then the angle grinder act, I actually had a kind of like a metal bikini made uh, by a blacksmith in Delaware called Ellen Durkin. She's unbelievable. It's fashionista, but it has rods that come out like nipple rods and rods that come out of the bottom piece and i use an angle grinder to create sparking effects that are choreographed in music british airways what was why did that become a story was, that was a really weird 24 hours i was just recently thinking about like you know what, what's going to be left behind when i die that's it there's like 30 different articles when i looked you up that are all about fucking that i'm like <laughs> she just was at a was part of a fire and they had a weird name that seems like the whole point of that story is your name yeah uh yeah i i really weird experiences in this lifetime very thankful for them but i was um i had a layover in vegas and i was just kind of you know not even thinking and i'm looking out the window and you know in vegas you've got the whole mountains and pretty runways and uh, this plane exploded and i was like holy shit and i remember I, I i took a picture of it and i put it on instagram and next thing i know i mean i got hundreds of comments on that and so i was in the airport on my layover and I take the picture and then people started calling me because my phone number was on my Instagram. And so, you know, it's news outlet after news outlet calling me for a story. And I'm just like, yeah, it just exploded. There's people outside on the runway right now. And I'm like giving like a live, you know, you know, thing to like the news. <laughs> and they're like, and your name. And I'm like, Reggie Bugmuncher. And like ever telling everybody Reggie Bugmuncher. And then uh, I had done a whole bunch of stuff. I turn off my phone and then I land in Philly and my phone 
restarts like three times because there's so many messages and updates. I uh, did an Australian morning show. Then I went, I got off the plane in Philly and went right to Fox 29 and they put me on the news that morning. And then I, all these, apparently I was the number one trending thing on Twitter in the UK above the queen at one point for the oh, day. Oh, there you go. Um, there you go, man. That's awesome. It's the trending shit. Like everybody was like, oh, you're going to like get so much out of this. And I was like, what the fuck am I going to get out of this, dude? Half the time they called me a burlesque dancer, which I'm not. And then the other half of the time it was just kind of uh all of it was about, I think everybody just got mad at the media. They were like, what kind of journalists do you have that when somebody said their name was Reggie Bugmuncher, you didn't say, excuse me? And so I think that a lot of it was just like, uh, it went, because it was clearly a made up name. Right, okay, and right. And I okay, think that yeah. like people were calling out the, the journalists. So that would, that's basically why the story went viral, because they were like, these journalists don't do any homework at all. They were just like, uh, there's like, basically, uh, the news story was the plane exploding, but then the, the next level of that was that, that there was like a real weirdo with a made up name that everybody in the world just took for granted what she said. <laughs> Did you also get attacked for that name in some way through, through the anger towards the reporters or did it not really land to you? Oh no, I think I think most people thought it was really funny. There is a there's a still a, still a parody Twitter out there, which is kind of annoying because like I can't get a verification thing for anything, you know, on any program. Well, I guess I can if I pay now. That's a new thing. Yeah, but I mean, like there was even a couple of parody Twitters where they tweeted once or twice, like oh, I'm Reggie, and then like that was it. <laughs> now they're dead Twitter. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> Do you know about like historical historical sideshow in our country? Can you give me a little like rundown of like how that came to be and who were the players and when that happened and how? Yeah, so I think uh, of course like P.T. Barnum is uh, an odd personal hero of mine. Um, he gets misquoted a lot, like the whole "there's a sucker born every minute." He never said that. Um, he did wind up being like a real teetotaler. He was never a drinker. Was never somebody that did stuff like that. But was he a hustler? Yeah, I mean like he could sell anything. Um, and he definitely did not use the word like freak and things like that for people that were different. Um, he saw everybody as like differently abled. And I think he almost had that Gothic optimism that I think that I have where it's kind of like, here's something different. Yeah. Here's something different. Here's something dark. And I'm going to make something awesome out of it. I'm going to make something really cool, something really special. And that's aside from like all of the, the moral quandaries and like the whole arguments of the man of the time. Like I won't even get into like social stuff and how incorrect everything was with sideshow 100 years ago i just posted um in, in terms of the, the, the page we do i just posted i don't know what their names are but they were albino twins they were black albino twins and it was it seemed like a heartbreaking fucking story there's actually a really good book that came out a couple of years ago about them um, and their family um because a lot of i mean a lot of people were either sold into the sideshow which i mean i mean it's, it's one of those things like as also as a libra you know i look at both sides of that what's your birthday october 20th so you're on the Scorpio end of the Libra. Almost, yeah. I'm on the, I'm on the Virgo Libra. I'm in the second day of, I'm the second day of. Oh, you're a September Libra. <gasps> Scandal. 24th, me and Jim Henson. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah, but I, I kind of look at it uh, in that kind of like, you know, you have a whole lot of people that, whose families couldn't take care of them. And also they couldn't get regular jobs and support themselves. And so you got stuck in this really shitty position where your only other option might not have even been the best option. But at the same time, the circus and the sideshow, I try not to romanticize what life was like for people that had been either willingly or unwillingly sold by their family, whether it was like circumstances. 
I like to think that the circus gave them a life. Was it the life they deserve? Probably not. Um, I try not to romanticize it and be like, the circus made these people a home. Well, I mean, like home is where you make it. You know, home is definitely where you make it. And these people had an opportunity to make money, which they wouldn't have at home. But I'm sure being sold by your family or like your mother crying as she gave you away because she couldn't take care of you was not very cool. I wonder if that was the same kind of treatment of people that were insane at that time, because that was also horrible treatment. Probably. Yeah. It's the same, same type of stuff. So I, P.T. Barnum, I think, brings up a lot of conflict and conversations like that. But when I, when I think about um, the things that he accomplished and the things that he tried, you know, for, for being somebody who was trying things that nobody else had ever done, for somebody that type of vision, you're going to fuck up a lot. And the way that we look at that is with a really different lens. I mean, should he have had a freaking whale, you know, in his Boston museum so that it could be boiled alive during a fire? Absolutely not. It also, it also begs the question, I've been thinking about this in other conversations, about intention. And I mean, we, you know, I post a lot of outsider artists, outsider musicians kind of stuff. And it's like, if someone could laugh at something, but that's not your intention to make that happen, should you not, should you, should you not promote this stuff? Like in terms of, you know, in terms of this time frame of sideshow performers, like if your intention was to not exploit them, and if people think you're exploiting them is, is are, you know, is, is, are you wrong? You know, I don't know. There's, I think there's a certain thing in art that I'm noticing in, where, people perceive something as exploitative, but it's not. And then oh. the question is, is it your, if your intention is to, you know, I mean, I think about photography, like I don't really do a lot of photos with like people that are down and out, but I have done a few photos and people that might be in that world, but they wanted me to take a photo and it's a different kind of, it's different and, and, and there's consent. But yeah. I also wonder like, it, you know, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird way to figure out is, I don't know. I, I think people can, people look at something as exploitative and they can be really harsh. Well, a good example of that, this like segues right into it, is uh, the sideshow 999i, which is a, a sideshow of people that are born different. So like Lobster Boy and a couple of other people, you know, and they were in a sideshow out of Texas. And I don't know if you know this, but there's, there were like at least 13 states that they were legally not allowed to perform in because they'd be like a post post dust bowl a lot of these states had been like in a very patriarchal mindset of like these people can't take care of themselves and they're being exploited so we're going to make it illegal for them to exhibit themselves or to be exhibited so now you have actual full-grown men that are either giants or born different or have like you know some medical problems that prevent them from getting a pretty standard job like you can't sit at a desk all day because of your medical problems or you you know the building that these buildings they expect you to work in don't have the kind of accommodations that you need as somebody who doesn't have legs or like all these other things and if you decided well I want to be a sideshow performer and they're like well not in these 13 states you just can't work here and so like there's stuff like that that's a little bit wild so like where do we draw the line between uh, making sure that people don't get exploited and then also talking about like our own agency. You know, we have the same talk about sex workers. You know, I, I always, I look at sex work and sideshow as so hand in hand and not just because of their hand in hand. It's almost the same thing. You've got like two art forms, you know, <laughs> You have two of these art forms, two of these jobs that have been around for as long as anything, you know, sex and entertainment. And you've got people that could be exploited, could be kidnapped, sold into it, human trafficking, things that happened in the sideshow in the 1930s and whatnot. And then you also have people that realize that 
perhaps they're in a spot where they can take control of their own agency. And another thing, I don't know um, how much like nerdy philosophy you did, but I remember, you know, just like in a, what is it like Adam Smith or John Smith? Jesus. Yeah. Uh, but when they talk about like what your labor is, like your labor is actually your body. Like the only, the only things that you can sell, like any human being on this planet, regardless of the stuff that we have, like strip it away. And all that we have is our labor, our own productivity. Sex workers and sideshow performers have a really keen sense of all of that. Like somebody who's a good sword swallower is really in touch with their body, everything that they do and their body and their labor is what they sell. And, you know, those, those, they're very closely related and not just that, but also the perspective that people have from the outside. I can't tell you how many times I've been doing a really gruesome act and somebody has come up to me and told me that I'm a really pretty girl and don't have to do that for a living. Do you take this sword and just stab them with it after that? I think that uh, for a lot of... <laughs> For a lot of what I call normies, I think that they consider that to be a concerned compliment instead of an insult, because um, it takes away from the agency that, like, you know, I choose to be here. I'm one of, like, there's only a couple hundred people in this world ever that can do some of the things that I do. And for you to come up to me and say, you know what, you're real pretty. You could be just as boring as everybody else here. And I see it a lot, you know, when it comes down to, like, burlesquers making a real big, important, like, differentiation, differentiating themselves from strippers. Like, oh, I'm no stripper. I'm a burlesque performer and it's like the fuck you are the fuck you are like you were we're in this together we're on the same team <laughs> chime in because one of my favorite photographers is Dan Arbus who took a lot of photos early in the day of sideshow performers and the reason she did that and she was a very kind person I mean she was an outsider herself in many ways although you know you wouldn't know it if you don't know her history you what she used to say about sideshow performers is that they wear their trauma on their bodies and that's what that and and it, and it was because of that there was a very honest interaction yeah and they couldn't she liked she preferred the taking photos of sideshow performers because they weren't hiding they were just themselves and i think she liked that her photography in me is very honest and real because of that and i think i i, I don't know i mean she honored those people but it, but again i'm sure people think she did not did not um and there's a horrible movie called fur which is a story about her life where she dates uh robert Downey jr well whatever character and he plays i don't know what you um, I don't know what the name is, but it's someone who has like hair everywhere. I don't know what there's. Oh, like a like a like Chewy. Um... Yeah, and it's just it's so bad because you know it's it's you know if that was a real person I would have bought it, but it's Robert Downey Jr. with with and then she shaves him. It's horrible. It's fucking the worst. It's the worst. There's only one movie about Dane Arbutz, and that's it, and it's fucking horrible. God damn it! <laughs> you get that one. You get the one movie, and that's what they do. You might enjoy it for a laugh, but uh, yeah. you know, I don't know why they did. I mean, it didn't make sense that they should have shaved him. It didn't make any sense. Yeah, damn it! That's such a bummer. I just think there's this. You know, I think like it's hard in this world, but it, but it's like you know, I tend to just gravitate towards the honest and real people. I think like you know, you probably like a too. You can you probably have a, a. I have a very big bullshit detector. I know who's fa who's fucking. F fake and I and I can feel their energy and I can notice they away and I think sometimes we don't we ignore that but it seems like you have that as well in, in terms of knowing who's full of shit and who's not yeah yeah I uh I, I've definitely like had uh bad people come into my life but I think it's because I've always you know like turn it off turn off the detector and see how it goes and uh well here's the thing here's the thing about like I guess would you identify as an empath um or empathic yeah definitely like 
I think definitely like empathic, but I think I, I pay a lot of attention to people. I was one of those like really nerdy kids. I think because of being so alienated, I read a lot of Emily Post and I read a lot of etiquette books and I read a lot of, you know, understanding body language and like how to know if somebody's interested in you. And like, then I got into it like, when I started doing stuff in college and grad school and I started working more with like government stuff, you know, like different agencies or like trying to understand how things work and criminology. And cause I mean, I was really interested in that stuff and like, as might be how I got into like disaster medicine and something more structured is because like I want to know yeah and I think it seems like it's a natural thing that maybe you didn't under maybe you develop but it, I feel like without without that being natural you wouldn't have dug that deep but mm-hmm. my point is people that are like bullshit detectors people that are narcissists fucking hate us and they will and they will come in your life I'm, I'm assuming some of these stories of men you've talked about are that fit in that category of narcissism I don't we don't need to get into that so much but I think like there's a certain exploitation when someone knows you think that you can see that they're a shit person they come after you or or they just completely uh avoid you i haven't um i can't everyone i've ever dated except for someone i'm dating now or maybe five people were all in that all in that category i, I think like i have like a i have an ongoing kind of conflict yeah well i i think um sometimes they sometimes they know sometimes they know that you're not somebody and i think that they'll avoid like there's definitely um oh i, I have i have one like right in my head right here where i'm just like oh i i know i know all about her we will not we will not mention <laughs> I don't, I think I've been like pretty lucky that, you know, except for like the past couple of years, I hadn't really like met anybody that I really would say is like a complete narcissist. But I, I, you know, once I moved up here, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely met one um, and I kind of see it with their business model and everything too. So like, um, pretty, pretty fucked up people, like, um, pretty interesting. They won't have anything to do with me. They won't have anything to do with me. We got about five minutes. I'm just wondering, is anything you're working on these days that you're excited, whether it's personal or more work related anything you're anything you're any projects you're working on that are kind of cool to you that you want to talk about oh geez um, and also let us know where we people can find out more about what you're doing and who you are if you don't mind yeah well uh first i'll say that uh, the, the aside from pt barnum the person that i wanted to mention historically that i kind of model myself on is uh captain don captain don leslie um famous tattoo famous tattooer uh famous sword swallower but he kind of lived uh he straddled a double life like myself like kind of a Hermit, like kind of uh, traveled with the carnival, also was a tattooer, um, lived, wound up ending his days up in the Bay Area, northern part of California, central California. Um, he's the reason I wear cowboy boots, always performed in cowboy boots. That's very cool. Yeah, he's pretty interesting dude. Um, pretty cool. We have a lot of the same tattoos too. I, I want to say one more thing about that I admire about you and then people in general. Like you live your own fucking life. And I think a lot of people get caught up in like, oh, I have to have these kids. I have to do this. I have to fit in, conform to religion. I got to conform to national, whatever. And I just, I think my favorite people and I'm becoming, I'm trying to come become, I'm finally at a point where fucking after 30 years of working for assholes, I'm like, I'm done. I'm just doing my own shit. I don't care if I fucking starve and die. I'm doing my own shit. Cause fuck everybody. And I just feel like you've really impressed me as you've done your own thing. You're living your own fucking life and it's not traditional and you're making it work. And whether it whether there's money or not, it's like you you get you, you know why are we not? You have your own life. Like why are people willing to give up their fucking lives for uh, for ideas for anything? It doesn't make any sense. So I really admire that you're living your fucking life. And I think a lot of people that we have on here are fit in that category in some way, even if they're like more well known. They're still they don't they still they're still their own person, which is I don't know. I think that's all you really get in life is your is your stories and 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 to enjoy your and to make a life that fits for you. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it, it's it's not easy when, you know, you want to go do something. And, and at the end of the day, I think you can kind of make your own path. I think I was I was really lucky. I grew up in a house where, like, I mean, I had kind of a, a shit childhood. You know, my parents were not happy. They, they followed that path. My mom was married a couple of times, and I think that my mom probably felt like she had to get married. I think that my mom felt like she had to have a career. My mom felt like she had to do all these things. And so she did them, and she was miserable as shit. And she took it out on everybody her whole life, you know, and then her husband's the same thing. I don't know if any of them wanted to be married, but then, you know, it's about time or you got somebody pregnant or you do something like that. And then, so I was raised by two people that were generally unhappy consistently with like the choices that they made and the choices they made weren't even theirs. I don't think, you know, I don't know what they would have done if they had like been left to their own devices, but they probably would have been a hell of a lot happier. Um, and so I think that that was a really big, really big deal. I remember the first thing that I saved up for was I saved up all of my quarters. I used to get those quarter books for my grandma and I saved them all up and I gave them to my mom so that she could get a divorce. Yeah. And like, you know, cause I just, I just didn't understand. And I think that I kind of still have that, that, that mental block of not understanding why, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's a really, it's, you know, cause people read you as being an asshole or something where I'm just like, why, why don't you just get divorced? And people are like, it's not that easy. And I'm like, well, I mean, it, it, nothing is going to be easy but you could choose to be miserable for an extra 10 years or you could just do it now like i, I did a little bit of a rant that i presented I, i'm trying to do more of my own presentation because i'm finding and so i did one it's just called quit it's just called like quit your job leave your leave your wife whatever husband like and i and i think like the reality is that, you know there's you know safety has to be concerned so you can't i do get that you financially can't just jump out but in the same way until you just claim your own fucking life, it's never going to fucking change. So even if you can't, yeah. if you don't have the safety to jump out, make a fucking plan and just fucking do it. The only reason I've ever gotten this far in Sideshow, and it's kind of wild because I, I, I forget half the things that I've accomplished. And then when the pandemic happened and I started doing stuff again, I started really going through a bunch of uh, imposter syndrome because it has been, you know, like two or three years since I've done things like crazy. And now I'm doing the conventions by myself, full 45 minute shows by myself. I'm doing all this stuff by myself. And and I, I remember I, I, I wouldn't have gotten here if it wasn't for the relationships and things that I had done for other people. Because my, my big, my whole saying in life, my life mantra for a long time has always been the answer is always yes, until it's no, until it's no. And like, you know, and that, that I've, I've definitely put myself in dangerous situations. I've definitely put myself in unbelievably amazing situations. And it was all just because it was like, hey, do you want to do this? Most people would say no. And I'm just, yeah, answer is always yes. Hey, thank you so much for checking this out. Um, this is an all-voluntary gig for me. Uh, if you want to help support us, we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com, Vintage Annals Archive. We have a Instagram, which is a star. We've got a close to 37,000 followers. Very loyal, really, really nice community there. Um, that's the start of all this work. I also have a page called the Jewish Vintage Annals Archive, which is the same kind of work, but with a Jewish focus. Um, we've got a website with a bunch of content. Some of that content you need to have Patreon. Um, but we've got a really good, you know, we've got a Facebook. Um, ch please check out any, anything you can and really support. This is a very, this is a passion project for me. I love doing this. Um, it's a lot of work. I don't mind the work, but I would love to, you know, having some more financial stability is really helpful. And um, please, please support it. And again, you know, if you can't support that, just spread the word. I really feel like this is a very strong podcast. We've had some amazing guests and continue to have. We've 
this is our 30th episode so please support it and i'm highly all, all the people we talk to i'm very proud of all this work i feel very lucky and honored to be able to do it i want to thank everybody who's been on our show enjoy have a great uh have a great week weekend wherever you're doing uh, until next week take care we thought indeed.